hello, this is Matt Hale from Art Monthly, bringing you another Resonance Radio Art Monthly talk show. I think I'm on. Yes, the engineer says I am on. He just does it without even telling me these days. It's so, I think I've been coming here a long time or something. Anyway, good to have you listeners. And um, before we go any further, I'm just going to say one boring thing, which is not boring really, because it means you get 10 issues of Art Monthly if you subscribe, basically. And you can get it for as cheap as £36, and we do hope you do. It's how Art Monthly survives. That's one main way, anyway. And uh, our subscriptions are rising, but we're always looking for new ones. New subscribers, that is. Um, Today, I'm joined in the studio by three female writers. And I I just fancy saying that fact, really. It's probably unnecessary, and I probably shouldn't have done it, really, but I have now. So we have Virginia Wiles... (laughs) Sorry, Ashia Eastwood, and I'm now going to forget the other one because I've gone blank, as I do when I'm nervous. I'm terribly sorry. <laughs> Catherine Lloyd. <laughs> sorry, Catherine. That's okay. You've been on before twice. Ashia's not been on ever before, no. and Virginia's been on so many times I've forgotten. No, not yeah. that many. Yeah, you can tell by the way she's so relaxed. <laughs> in fact, we're about to start talking to her first about what she has got in the current issue of Art Monthly, which is the February edition, 2018, number 413. We're talking about three texts from this magazine. One is an interview with Rashid Areen by Virginia Wiles. Another is by Catherine Lloyd, which is the profile of Sophie Jung. And the third is... Ashia Eastwood's book review of T.J. Demos's Against the Anthropocene, Visual Culture and Environment Today. Hello, all. Hello. Okay, Hello. Virginia, we're going to start with you. Um, I mean, we've never actually, in fact, well, I never have talked about an interview before. Because what we normally do is talk about features. In other words, you write a feature about ideas of yours in relation to things, and then you mm. explain them. Whereas this is actually slightly different. But I thought it, it would be appropriate because there are a lot of ideas in the interview, mm. which you did with Rashid, aren't there? And, and he's someone you've known a long time. Um, can I ask you how long you've known him? Is that polite? <laughs> um, Just well, roughly, let's say do. about 25, 30 years. That's, that's, yes. Yes, OK. Yeah. Good, stuff, good stuff. Since I was a teenager. OK, brilliant. <laughs> I believe you. <laughs> um, I mean, you did the yeah. interview, which I, I always think the structure of interviews is interesting because a lot of people think interviews are done entirely verbally and then we transcribe the verbals onto page. Mm. How did you do this one? Well, I have to say, thank goodness, uh, we did it by email. <laughs> uh, the reasons for my relief will become perhaps obvious with a few observations, but uh, it was partly... uh, It wasn't expected to do it by email. I was going to do it in situ at the exhibition, but sadly, Rashid had um, appendicitis operation in Holland, and so he was bed. Oh, I didn't he was know in that. hospital. Yeah, poor, he poor missed his missed his own opening. Oh, I'm so sorry because I saw a video of him on the Van Ab Museum website yeah, of him yeah. walking around, but it was still being put up. Yes, so it must have yes. happened really it soon after that. The day before oh, the that's opening. That's terrible because yeah. it's a fantastic exhibition for him it's to have. It's a beautiful exhibition, and for him to yes. have it. Because it's, it's, yeah. it's his first retrospective? Yes, his first complete retrospective. And that's why the first question was I was saying, are you um, delighted or do you find it ironic that it happens to be in Holland, not in Great Britain? And, of course, he replied immediately, fitting and ironic, which uh, I think transpires in what he has to say, that... Um, 
He's he's an extraordinary man. I have to say straight away that I have great admiration for him over the years. Above all, I think I admire third text. The fact that his production and his editing and uh, his regular writing and his persistence with third text over the years. It's been a source of fantastic um, information and inspiration for the work I do on non-Western art history. And it's filled that gap that was huge. I don't know what you others think about it, you know, but there was no magazine of that quality or starter that existed before. And when, when did it start? Was it in the seventies <coughs> or eighties or something? Um, gosh, I think it was in the eighties. I think it was. I think it was eighties. It was just yes, after the period of the seventies of his tremendous politicisation, late 70s, and then eighties. And it's still going now, but he's not actually involved no, anymore. He's not I believe. So involved, no, I think it's edited by people like Richard Dyer now, isn't it? Yes, who has had been a former assistant yeah, editor. Yeah. I was chatting with John Roberts, who's someone who used to contribute to a third text mm. a lot, and he wrote. A, a piece about it. Yes. A no. word came up, actually, in his bit of writing, which was negritude. Do you know that word? Yes, well, negritude is from Fanon's writing, and because and uh, Rashid admires uh, France Fanon very much, in his, and he, he refers to him at one point. In, in lots of texts, he refers to him, because uh, he became involved with black power, and negritude is Fanon is uh, of... Uh, French Caribbean origins, and that's the word for the black blackness movement that Fanon was behind. Which was in the 1930s in Paris, is that right? Was that uh, incorrect? Yes, 30s, 40s, and then later, yeah, later, moving on later. Cause, because Pere, so, Pere, he, he went to Paris, Rashid, didn't he? Uh, yes, he did. Uh, that's right. He talks about that initially in other places, that he went to Paris before coming to Britain because that was a bit the path of a lot of um, modernist artists from Pakistan, that they, uh, Shakir Ali and several others, Sadiqin, studied in Paris. But he was disappointed by Paris. And ironically, I've never really asked him about that. I, I would have asked him, uh, and I will ask him, because he did stay with me and my family in Paris in the um, 90s when I put on an exhibition about cultural identity and he was in it at Rouen. And he was great fun. My, my kids always remember him giggling. He was a, a very, he has a great mischievous sense of humour. Uh, which um, doesn't transpire much in this <laughs> interview because uh, he quite rightly has a lot of things to grumble about, particularly the British art scene regarding black Asian artists. And, um, yeah, so that is... I think he's absolutely justified that there's a sort of endemic institutional racism in the British art world and... Um, that it needs a counter-art history and that that art history has been very slow in building up, you know. And uh, he, sh he, in a way, provoked, pushed it, let's say, with the, with the show The Other Story. And the interesting thing is that The Other Story, although how bold it was and how many black artists it was, it didn't have that many women in it. And we'll come back to that issue. Well, we might not. Why don't you talk about it now? <laughs> well, this is the sort of, you know, I have to say that I think throughout the interview and especially towards the end that I agree with a lot of what, of his critique 
of um, this lack of evolution in developing any kind of counter-art history in the modernist thing, and especially, let's say, the kind of embedded racism at the Tate, although I think uh, that needs much more debate. debate. Um, But I think he's right, and, and the shows I've seen even just in the last years that I've written about in Art Monthly reveal that ongoing avoidance of really addressing the political issues of colonialism. And that's what is totally lacking in British Western, let's say Western, generalised Western art history, but let's keep it to Britain at the moment. And even in the show that uh, the North South North South thing in Manchester yeah, you recently, recently fast, didn't yeah, you? yeah. Uh, it didn't develop it in the sense of what had really gone under partition. It was pushed in the forward of a glorious celebration of independence of India and uh, and Pakistan. I mean, it was hardly glorious. And then um, Bangladesh was more or less left out of the story. So I mean, now. So much positive things to say, but I have to say that uh, rereading the interview and receiving his replies, I was extremely disappointed by his attitude towards women. And basically what comes through all his uh, framing of that is an exaggerated um, critique uh, and personalised, which I think is too personalised, and it really detracts from his argument about certain w- black women artists, which is totally unnecessary. If It shows to me, curiously, a lack of information and uh, an ignorance about the situation. So, for example, when he says that... Um, uh, that there was there was there was no relationship between feminism and black consciousness, and that that alliance is still missing. Uh, it's absolutely absurd. You just have to see the list of uh, exhibitions, not simply of exhibitions of black women artists in American art that we've seen recently at the Tate, but in all the exhibitions that have gone on, organised in the origins by Lubaina Himid, that did a tremendous job black organising black women artists, five black women artists at the African Centre, the very first one, and then her work with doing the Elbow Room with all sorts of other black women artists like Sonia Boyce, Claudette Johnson, Hurini Ati, Veronica Ryan, etc. Um, and uh, she speaks in of her interviews, when we look at it, about her gasping at the unrelenting omissions by galleries and museums, historians and fellow artists about black women artists, that there was a kind of invisibility imposed on them, a discrimination, and that that even happened, she said, in the other story. And there was a review by Sutapa Biswas of the other story saying that um, a lot of the older women were not included in that. There was a neglect of black women, and she went into details about it. So... um, I think it's a shame, but I mean, having said that, I think his uh, this show was terrific. At the, um, it shows all the very interesting work he did um, with the grid system that I talk he talks about in detail, and um, I think the table showing all the back copies uh, that he showed at Documenta, and then here again, the reading room is a lovely idea around. Centering the uh, copies of third text, yeah, yes, third yes. text. They're all coloured covers, and actually, when it's laid out 
like that. It looks like a yes. bit like a painting. Yes. Especially if you're not very near it, doesn't it? And he, and he makes paintings which are kind of geometric. Very much so, yes. Colours now, particularly, doesn't he? Yeah, and and the way it was integrated with the kind of uh, the shapes and the forms that he... There's several pictures in the, in the copy uh, uh, that uh, using in his sculptures of this sort of um, permanent rearrangement of his vortexes and grids and diagonals, and that suits it very well. And I think, above all, the Shamiana that he did at, in Athens, which I sadly didn't see... Um, is a tremendous idea, that sort of opening up of a free cafe, uh, NGOs offering food to people coming sitting with the background of his works, but it's just for conversation. And that, to me, is a real socially motivated, positive feeling, which he talks about at the end, that uh, to work with a new creative potential, a new idea of collectivity uh, on the basis of egalitarianism. So I think all those ideas are incredibly strong and have been voiced with great articulacy throughout his life, but this undercurrent of misogyny disturbs me profoundly. Yeah. Can, can you do... He talks about um, the... <laughs> the, the, the square, the geometry, and he makes mm. sculptures which are kind of a bit like solar wit um, boxes, uh, but they have a diagonal line in them. And he makes a lot of claim mm. politically in a kind of quite a big leap into what the diagonal significance of the diagonal line is. In other words, it, he sort of describes the work and then it's, yeah. he's, he talks about it as being a system, I think, which people could use sort of structuring their lives and the, but the importance of the diagonal. And I don't... It seems to be a big leap between a sort of quite simple diagram made into a form, which you see, and they, the claims for what it can do to change society. And I, I don't, quite, don't quite get the leap. But I'm, I'm probably... Well, I think it's the idea of the diagonal um, creating a third space, a different sort of space, and that, you know, becomes a metaphorical idea. So really. it is metaphorical. I was going to say, it does yes. seem very metaphorical, because, but he never uses that word. Though. I mean, in a way, if we look at what happened with Mondrian and the, uh, and the, the Dursberg, who fell out... Uh, because Van Dersberg used the diagonal, and Mondrian thought that was absolutely against. And that, in a way, you see, uh, he he admits, he, he talks about his admiration for constructivists here, although he was far more, uh, Arane was far more in, influenced by what by British uh, constructivists. Like and Ca Caro and them. people like that, he yeah. says, doesn't he? Anthony Hill yeah. and, Car and Mary Martin and Kenneth and Mary Martin. Because he often denies that he was influenced by, by art in Pakistan. Yes. Doesn't he? He was, he's interested in modernism. He's totally yeah. interested in modernism. Mm. Yes, well, he's very, very disparaging about his uh, about Pakistani artists, and, and that's uh, one point that I brought up because he'd sent me a letter uh, more or less um, saying that the, especially the work, the artists I was working with at the time, the miniature paintings. In Pakistan? Yeah, uh, that they were just doing it for the Western market. And the irony in that criticism is that they were getting that critique absolutely from the right wing people in Pakistan. So there's a curious kind of loop that links up in a rather disturbing way here. 
and it doesn't make sense. And when I brought it up with him in the interview and I said, but look, you know, um, they've proven themselves. <laughs> They're not just in it for the market and they've got very interesting ideas and I name the artist. And then he gives this extraordinary reply that whatever they do is a discourse of secondary level as part of the cultural diversity of the globalised art market, sanctioned and legitimised by the liberal art institutions of the West. So you can't get away from it, and this is what he's attacking them for. And in a way, one could turn around and say, but Rashid, are you not yourself involved in the whole art market and the um, liberalised art institutions of the West? So it's a very delicate area. Yeah, I mean, it's all very human, really, isn't it? Because it's sort oh, of, yes. it's, it seems to be full of desires and wishes for political change and everything, but the reality of, of life sort of cuts in and... <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, Virginia, that, that's mm. kind of when I was reading the interview, that was the main. It kept coming back to me that he was so um, hard on people being part of these systems, even if they're not aware of it, but seems so certain of, of himself remaining yes. completely distinct from those systems. Even if it's just simple inspiration, he will not acknowledge his own involvement in those. And I don't understand how he can be so certain of his own role as yes. distinct from those. Absolutely, yes, I agree with you that there's a kind of covering up all the time because he always saying, he's saying on one hand, I'm not really criticising them, I admire them, but mm. they are uh, part and parcel of the system in a, in, 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 and even though they're not aware of it. And almost one senses there's a kind of inverted false consciousness on his part that, you know, how come all the others are you know, brought in uh, into a sort of consensual situation, but he avoids it. Yeah, exactly. But um, that, that's, yeah. Every time you even kind of make a point about a certain influence that he would have been exposed to, he negates it every single time yes. and says he wasn't aware of it then or it came to him later in his career yeah. or he was just making, he was just trying to make work about beauty. Yes, but everyone else falls prey to these things. Well, you see, I think perfectly his, his right to make those observations about his appreciation of the situation. But when he makes statements that there is no such thing as a Western understanding of, um, of um, modernism, Islamic modernism and, what, and the contribution to modernism made by Islam, that's absolutely not true, factually... Uh, um, false. There have been so many people who've worked on that notion of, well, partly I bring up Iftikhar Dadi, who's a very serious Pakistani critique, who talks about his um, voluntary ambiguity about the relationship with the Islamic art. But he's suggesting that um, he's he admits at the same time he's only just discovered it and that he's beginning to relate to it. But the fact is there are all sorts of people who've worked on um, uh, the, the, the geometry. For example, Keith Critchlow. I don't know if you remember Keith Critchlow. He's still very active. He's now 85. But he was actually professor of Islamic art at the Royal College before the shift, uh, and he went to the Prince's School of Traditional Arts. But he's written some extraordinary books on sacred geometry, order in space, precisely talking about the importance of geometry 
in abstraction and abstract art and the and the inspiration that it has for Western artists, you know. So there's a whole uh, gap, in a way, in his presentation, representation of Western art history. Of course, there's a lot to criticise about it, but that, you know, the luck, anyway. Because he, he, he was in the UK, he seemed, he seemed to be looking at Western British artists yeah. and not really looking anywhere else mm, mm. for quite a while, wasn't he? And, yes. And, and, and maybe only started to look away when he started, I don't know, maybe when he started travelling and exhibiting abroad more again or going back. How, did he used to go to Pakistan a lot? Um, well, he goes every year. But did he, has he done that all his life? Or yes, was that he goes back to his family. I wasn't quite sure if that was something he did again later. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Interesting. Shall we... Shall we um, mm. Move on to the next subject and see how we shall we go because we tend to find things do relate sometimes, but not always. But I haven't got a, an obvious link across to a Shear's piece. But give it a bit of time now, Shear. You, you you did a review of, as I said before, T.J. Demos's book, which is published by Sternberg Press, by the way. Um, I don't think you have you written a review for Art Monthly before. No, I mean, it's no, my so first, it's your first one. First one, so and your first time on the program. So yeah, good stuff. Um, we did have this feature on the Anthropocene before by Jamie Sutcliffe in the magazine, didn't we? And he was on the programme, actually, with Catherine as well. Um, so it's a, it's a subject some of our readers might be familiar with, but mm -hmm. what, what, what is the Anthropocene, just to start the ball rolling? Is that um, a very unfair question, I know. No, no, um, it's, it's valid. It's, it's a term that we are hearing so often now, but I think it's... I think it's not always explained particularly. Um, I think there's an assumption. Um, so, yeah, it's a term that was popularised in um, 1999, 2000 by um, Paul Crutzen and Eugene Sturmer. Um, they just made the announcement um, that we are living in the Anthropocene. The idea that the Anthropocene is um, a geological epoch directly resulting from the Industrial Revolution and... Essentially, um, even though we're not officially out of the Holocene now, the idea is that we have shifted our understanding of human impact on the Earth and we've impacted it in a way that we can't go back now. So there has been a change and we um, it's now a case of um, coming to terms with what we have done and what we can do from now on in order to negate the um, effects, mainly climate change. Um, now, TJ Demos and, and also um, Jamie Sutcliffe's article that um, you spoke about here as well, there's been a backlash against the term Anthropocene. Anthropocene, Anthropocene itself being um, the etymology referring to the idea that it's um, human impact and human impact on a broad scale, so all humans, all humans have had this effect on the world and therefore we all have to take responsibility. Um, what it doesn't do is take into account the the differences in, in who actually has had that impact. Um, so really we're looking at a result of the Industrial Revolution which has been driven by capitalism and it's the large corporations which have had this effect on climate change and have had this effect on farming communities and have had the effect on um, floods and earthquakes um, it doesn't take into account the people that aren't individually responsible so it makes this it makes it makes out that 
as individuals, we're all to blame um, when actually there needs to be a shifting in that blame. So we need to take a step back and we need to consider actually, as individuals, there are things that we can do, obviously, but it's not as simple as turning off the lights and recycling and you know we we can be ethical consumers but actually what really needs to happen is the blame needs to be put back onto the the drivers of of climate change onto the capitalist organizations onto this entire structure that we live in and it needs to be a case of they have to accept the blame and they have to um be forced to reconsider their actions um, so TJ Demos is talking about this idea of naming and he comes up, well, comes up, he, he mentions a few different alternatives that have been kind of put out there in it, as opposed to the Anthropo- sorry, Anthropocene. Um, one being Capitalocene, another being Cthulhocene, which is a term that Donna Haraway has used. Um, Jamie Sutcliffe described that better than I can um, <laughs> as we, we mentioned before that none of us really understand well, what it means. can't hardly say the word it's C-T-H <laughs> yeah, doesn't it? I mean it, it obviously comes from Lovecraft but I don't really, I, I've not been able to make much sense of it myself. Um, there's also I, I read a really nice piece by uh, Robert McFarlane on um, the subject and he was speaking about um, the idea of plastics and, and he, he wrote a really beautiful um, sentence referring to um, a Philip Larkin. Philip Larkin wrote, what will survive us is love. And Robert McFarlane wrote, actually, instead, what will survive us is plastic. And lead 207, the stable <laughs> isotope at the end of uranium-235 decay chain, and then kind of referred, well, maybe, you know, maybe the, the term plasticine is a better term. So there's all these kind Which of... Which I think is funny, because it does exist yeah, yeah, already, yeah. that word. No, I know, I know. Um, <laughs> so there's, there's all these alternatives, and I think it's the case now of um, going, right, OK, well, what, what can we do? And um, there's... So I was just reading before, um, Timothy Morton, um, he has written on the subject quite a lot recently. He he came up with the notion of hyper-objects, hyper-objects kind of being related to this idea of the Anthropocene as um, they, they, it, it's a way of looking at the concept of time. So with all of these um, effects that we're seeing now, the problem is is it makes it makes us reassess our own time on the earth and also the 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 idea of human time versus geological time and how difficult it is to understand really our own existence beyond uh, beyond and before what is going on now um and timothy morton wrote um about it um how what we have to sort of consider now is that the, the world as we know it has ended and what we need to do is um, now embrace that end as the, the concept of the world that he talks about. We have to embrace that end and we have to seize a way to um, to make new connections with non-humans and also seize the opportunity to attack the, the organisations that have kind of put us in this situation. And um, Naomi Klein wrote about it in the sense that 
what has been done before is often um, the environmentalists would try and kind of work with big organisations to get them to change. And actually what she says is we, we do need to just look at changing the system from the outside. Well, so, because because they won't change. Because they won't change. So it's, it, it needs to stop being right, we'll get into bed with them. We need to actually just attack them. And it needs to be quite a serious, like things have to change, basically. There has to be positivity but there also has to be that that real ambition like because individuals cannot change the situation it has to be from the top so yeah sounds, um, like, sounds like a, a rashid diagram <laughs> with a diagonal line must come in here somewhere but i can't quite yeah. but it, obviously that's the way to try and get people together <laughs> to do something so um yeah going back to the review so TJ Damos is talking about these arguments and then he's talking about how we would go about representing that in visual culture and um it's quite an interesting topic because it kind of goes back to the idea of deep time which I think he uses the term and also Robert McFarlane uses it in the sense that it's really difficult to represent these kind of discussions and arguments in visual culture when it's something that's so massive compared to what we would sort of encounter on a daily basis. And he mentions the um, the narratives in the media when you see um, environmental refugees in particular. You'll see images that kind of relate to very personal narratives um, where it's situations that are as a result of climate change. Like someone's lost their house in a flood yeah. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. But you don't... So you'll, you'll kind of get all this visual imagery and you feel like you're very aware of the situation, but then you don't really get that imagery that represents why we're in that situation uh, because it's kind of too big to understand, really. So you, get, you have these sort of different different perspectives and at the other side of it so you have you have the very close very personal narratives and then at the other end you have this kind of trend for these like photographic agencies um using like very high data very um kind of science science and statistic driven imagery that is sort of so so far removed from what we understand that again it's it's kind of really difficult to relate are you, are you to thinking of the welcome to the anthropocene web, that, website that's a good, is that an example that's of, a good of, example of, of that of, yeah of the, the, the large picture but yeah. not really giving you so the kind of really really um very almost fake looking visualizations like so that they're, they're so fake they just don't seem real they they they, they they look like something that is so, so far from what we understand on a daily basis. So there's this kind of gap in between. There's, you have, the, you, there's no real way of... So the artists aren't in that middle no, area particularly? I, I kind of feel like they're not. I mean, I, the more I've looked into it, because over the years I personally have been really interested in the concept of nuclear waste and nuclear waste disposal and how that's um, represented. And the the way that most artists seem to work with this medium is through the representation of absence. Um, so kind of, I mean, I've, I spoke to you before about um, an artist called Taryn Simon who worked with um, plays on Malevich's Black Square and um, she looks at nuclear waste disposal through um, representations of um, the absence of the work um, working over in Russia to, um, sorry, to kind of use this idea of the missing artwork 
in an isolated area that you cannot access as being the representation of what we can't understand because we will never see the true effects of what's happening around us now. Yes, so it's an attempt to, to deal with it, but yeah. it's a difficulty in doing so. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear if anyone else has any... Another example? Yeah, because I've struggled, really. Well, I, I don't know, but I, I agree with the proposal. What, what I What's interesting is an exhibition opens today in... Mumbai, in Mumbai, called Asymmetrical Objects. And it's typed, sorry, <laughs> I can't hear, Asymmetrical Objects. And the title's taken from uh, Timothy Morton, uh, who is described as the philosopher prophet of the Anthropocene. And he talks about um, <clears throat> that we are now in an a back to the symmetry <laughs> issue. Good, good, good. We're now in an asymmetrical phase where hyper-objects that you brought up, uh, forces beyond cognition, take a life of their own. So this has been the proposal given by the curator, who's the head of the museum, to uh, about 10 artists, all of whom I, whose work I know. And I, I'm, I, I mean, I'm longing to see examples of it because they're artists who actually work with materials here and now and not with a kind of uh, supersonic, hypertrophic, mm. you know, anthropocenic future, um, uh, but with the reality. And so they say that they're dealing it with through the daily issues in India of, of the problems of water, of consumption, of excess, of pollution, of hybridity, of debris, of destruction. Mm. But so they've taken that theme, you know, so it's obviously a modish theme, but uh, of course. Can I just ask again about the high project? Is because when you said it first, I thought, oh, you might mean a car. And the only reason I say that is because a car is obviously something which make, has a, a big effect. Mm. It, in other words, if you take the car out of the equation, things might, have, might not have happened as much as they have. Or Certainly there are objects we have created which have hyperized <coughs> global warming, perhaps. You know, but that's not what you mean. So I'm not quite no. clear what a hyper-object is. And, I, and I, I think we should say to people that if you really want to know, and I need to read it and I do wish to, is to read a book called Hyper Objects by Timothy Morton, um, which is the, uh, a book covering this subject oh, right. better than yes. we probably will now. No, but I'll, I'll, uh, he, in the introduction he um, says, which sums it up, he, um, he uses the term hyperobjects to refer to things that are massively distributed in time and space relative, relative to humans. Hyperobject could be a black hole. Um, he, he talks about it in terms of global warming, but he also talks about it in terms of nanotechnology and um, nuclear waste. It can be something mm. that's really tiny or something that's okay. really massive. So scale in literal scale doesn't count? In, in literal scale, um, also um, metaphorical scale, and uh, again, it's just things that shift our understanding of time, basically. Okay. So it's quite a complicated concept. Yeah, yes. but it's, it's really interesting. I won't try and tie it all up now. <laughs> Would you say that the car sent in the rocket the other day up to Mars. It might be Is connected. Is that a hyperobject, or will it become hyperobject? I mean, I guess it probably. I is, thought it was a lovely explanation of why he'd put a car in, apart from the fact that he'd made it, and it's obviously. Yeah. <laughs> is that it was for the weight, to weigh it down. Yeah, if you believe that, believe anything. <laughs> Let's move on to Catherine's um, profile of Sophie Jung. Um, what kind of artist is she, fundamentally? Um, fundamentally, she is an artist who makes installations and sculptures in order to perform around them. Um, she's very concerned with language, um, the malleability of language specifically, that it can't really be trusted, and also the voice, that um, 
she often occupies multiple voices um, to kind of show you how slippery language and what, what we say can be. Um, but it's often, it's framed around these series of objects that she creates. So if she has an exhibition, she will go to an archive of objects, which she has. It's a very extensive archive. Oh, really? What, she got like a, a big studio full of stuff on shelves or something? She, yeah, she said that she has, um, it's kind of like an inventory, essentially. She has right. lots of boxes and they're all labelled. I don't think they'll follow any conventional <laughs> archival format. They'll kind of, the labels will be very yeah. odd because of the ob objects that she chooses. But so she will go into this archive and select objects which speak to each other and then she'll go into a space and she'll construct a series of sculptures which become an installation and then once all the objects stand she will write um, texts which kind of detail her connections between all the things what they represent or what they can represent to, to her particularly do you think or do you think yeah yeah, I th yes. is, it very, is it very personal I mean as in would I I mean, I have seen the exhibition she did at Blaine Southern. Yeah. Um, I didn't see the performance. Okay. But I, I mean, you could make connections between things to a degree, but equally some of them seemed like semi-random, mm. But because then I, I didn't make them. I think that's what Sophie's interested in, I, that there is no... She, she doesn't believe in dogmatic language or meaning. It's all about the fact that it's arbitrary, the connections between an object and, and what it conveys. So whatever you, what associations you would make are just as interesting as the associations that she would make. Um, so she's very liberal. <laughs> yes, I guess, yeah. Um, it sounds so different to yeah. Rashid. Well, it's different in the fact that I was thinking about this, that she does not, she, she doesn't acknowledge that she can remove herself from her own situations and the systems that she's part of. So... She is very political, but she's also very aware of her own position. You know, she's a white European female, and I think a lot of the things that she is outraged by or upset by politically, she is aware of her own position whilst reacting so to those things. So it's a self-critique. I think it's you think you use that. Or, or you said something about torpedoing herself. Yeah, she often... <laughs> yeah, the, the, yeah, her work is... It, it, it can't be taken in one way because she doesn't believe in the possibility of taking anything in one way. So she will back herself into a corner verbally all the time to try and articulate that slipperiness of language. I was, I was thinking about it earlier. It's, it's, her work's kind of like a black hole. Like the, the more you delve into it, the less you kind of understand. And the, it's, it's very unstable. And... Um, that's what she's interested in, ultimately. But that's, but an, that's an, an, understand, an understood instability. I mean, it's one... <clears throat> it's, yeah. It's not an instability through inability. No, not at all. It's, it's, that's what it's about. That's what it's there for, to kind of... to show you that instability. Um, Does she show you, like, different ways of approaching the same thing? At one point, I think you describe how she says... She began a, a performance where she said, imagine you mm. entered the room drunk... Yeah, you would have to have done this and that, which obviously is some may have done anyway, and some wouldn't yeah. have done. But they were being made to think about different ways of. But she being. also she also says it when you're already in the room. So she's saying, imagine you've just come in and you've been there for ten minutes. Yeah. So she's always that's time playing with time as well, isn't it? Yeah, and just the fact that language is 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 not stable, and you can't trust that connection between the interior and the exterior and trying to always communicate yourself and that you will always fail 
you will always there'll always be multiple readings and there'll always be um you know ways to interpret things so she often sets up failures for herself in a way so she's saying come in imagine you're drunk and you have to lean against that wall so she makes it very specific so that you kind of try and imagine that you can do it but ultimately you can't and you're not doing that you're you're experiencing her work in a completely different way she plays or enacts different characters a misogynist a nationalistic approach a bureaucratic one i mean why do you think she does does that because that's slightly different I think well she ultimately she's interested in theatre and she studied theatre didn't she Yeah she's she? she's she's went originally yes and then she ended up going to art college but she wanted to um study costume design and then set design and she, her family are actors and so her work is very much a theatrical convention these installations that she makes are almost stages they're, they're props for her text which and the relationship between those props and the text is very important in the same way that when you go see a play the props um, symbolise certain things, they communicate certain things. <coughs> so she she is interested in theatre, but also the conventions of theatre, the, everything that happens backstage, how someone transitions from an actor into a character, and she will enact various characters. She reveals it all, do you yes, think? Yes. So it's Brechtian in that sense. Yes, yeah. Everything is apparent. Yes, everything is very apparent, and you can see all the things that should be invisible. So you watch her transition between characters and you see the different voices that she goes through. And I think it's that it's an anxiety, really. It's about, to me, the, the anxiety of articulating yourself and not being, not being understood fully. So you communicate various different voices and see which ones people... Which is possibly what people do to a degree in life anyway... <clears throat> But, but equally, it's a very confident thing to do, what she's doing, because despite the fact that it might be showing something which you're not clearly, you're not in one, you don't have one position and you're not dogmatically clear about it, you're doing it publicly. Yeah. It's confident, but then it's also anxious. I think she's caught between so many different things, but there, there's a risk, I suppose, that if she's embodying these misogynistic voices, which ultimately she is criticising, people will just read it at face value and they'll take elements of what she's saying. And, and miss all the other bits. So there is an element of risk. You mean they'll reveal their prejudices? Yeah, what do you mean? I th- yeah, I guess. But, um, it, Virginia. The, just um, the paradox is that she starts off with objects, this archive of objects, mm. and then it, 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 I've not seen it, so I'm just asking because I don't quite follow that it seems according to your description, that it really um, moves much more into the world of words than objects. And that how is this... It becomes a... You describe it as a dialogue, but what interests me would be the notion of a dialogue with the objects. <clears throat> You're setting up an, uh, an idea that it's almost a monologue with her enacting psychological states, Con- facts provoked by the objects but does she ever bring the object into this yeah Yeah, so when she's performing she she uses this installation that she creates but she goes around she picks up specific objects and she sometimes it's clear her (coughs) associations are clearly articulated she might mention um that she's talking about an aubergine while she's holding an aubergine, and then she will go on to whatever that creates in her mind, whatever connections that brings, and sometimes she points to different elements, and it's like she's always trying to desperately communicate everything that's in her head Mm. all the time by showing... It's like show and tell. She shows you these (coughs) things, 
and she's trying to communicate it all whilst also acknowledging that it's impossible to communicate it all mm. because it's based completely on a web of connections that we have no access to mm. because we're just experiencing it through her monologues. Yes. There's a piece in the Blaine Southern show called Come to Grief, which you mentioned, mm. which is a stack of black and blue supermarket mushroom trays that somehow or other it, it comes into relating to Grenfell Tower. Yeah. And, and then she uses a play of words, which, you know, she has used words like whinny, whining, whining. But then she might, but in this one, she, she ends up, I think you're saying, she uses the words um, repent, leading mm-hmm. to the word penthouse. Yeah, actually, I've got this. So she's sort of addressing yeah. quite a political, yeah. you know, social reality out in, in London now, mm-hmm. it, within a word. So she definitely draw, is making, but would you say that she was making an opinion or a view on that state of affairs related to Grenfell, or she is she somehow? I don't know. I was wondering um, whether that was a political position. She was actually there was one point where she was actually saying this is. I guess it's it's difficult to say because in some way, to me, it's very clear that she's talking about Grenfell because she's completely disturbed by it. But then there's also. The fact she goes to, so I've got the script here for Come to Grieve, and she'll be talking in the voice of developers through to the the press, through to the residents, and then something that's potentially coming from her own voice, but you're never sure, and then to the the voice of the government. So she, I guess, she's trying to not not embody all all the elements of a situation, but she, you know, there's not one voice for that scenario so she she kind of goes through each Ooh. one of them and she will arti- articulate it in different ways so it's about the the, the slipperiness of, of having one dogmatic voice about a certain political tragedy even even one as sensitive and particular as that one where where, you, where <coughs> I, I, I mean which is fine by me i mean what i mean is she's, she's willing to take on one where many people would think it was you know only one obvious thing had happened and that was it was wrong but i mean i guess the, the way you read this like it is it's quite clear that there's critic. There's criticism about, you know, the repent, repent, repent house offers. It's like, where is the repent? It's obviously that there are elements where she she's saying that. Well, I would say that I would interpret it as though that repentance is not there. There's a focus on other things. There's a focus on commercial aspects, or there's an avoidance of um, responsibility. And I think <clears throat> that she also is clearly aware of her own position as a bystander and aware of the fact that it is a delicate situation. So there's all these layers about, she's talking about this, can I talk about this? How do other people talk about this? So it's very hard to dogmatically say anything about the text that she writes, to be honest. Sounds like very good collage to me. <laughs> yeah. Verbal collage. Yeah, well, it it sounds right from the start. I put down the sort of the link to surrealism is huge because, apart from the found objects that she has, the collection, the kind of, um, but also this stream of consciousness in a way, Um, um, and then the notion of objects as animating them, almost as fetishes, Mm -hmm. you know, animistic. which brings in a, a, an anthropological aspect, which I find very interesting. I'd, I'd, it's made me want to see her. Yeah, I think the show's not on anymore at Blaine Southern, but no, she, she shows quite a lot. And Tom, Tom Morton from Freeze yeah. selected her for that. 
I think he also selected her for another show in yeah, America before that a few in times. LA. Yeah, so yeah, Martha. I mean, yeah. if Morton's doing something, she'll probably be doing it as well. <laughs> She's got a show um, primary in Nottingham at oh, the great. moment until the end of February. And she's got, um, I think she's doing something for a performance now mm. at Constable Basel, which is quite soon. Okay. So she's got yeah. a lot of projects on the go, but she's yeah, busy. Blaine Southern's finished now. Just out of interest, I noticed that she made, actually, I think you say this in your piece, that she had 13 pieces mm-hmm. in the show at Blaine Southern, which is a commercial space, by the way. And, and they were actually, you could, they were titled, I think, yeah. separately, and you could buy one. I mean, yes. they, it was interesting because you said she did installations, and it did feel quite like an installation, but she very cleverly got it so that actually there were separate. <laughs> I guess sort of, I'm not sure what the word is for a kind of group of stuff, but anyway, yeah, there assemblage. were 13 groups of assemblages. Mm. Yeah. And, and it, I thought it was clever because, you know, it's a hard game to play to be a performance mm-hmm. artist and make a living. And I, no matter what anyone says, people have to make livings. And I hope she does because she's playing a, a good game in that way. But to be able to do that and... Yeah, but the thing with Sophie's work is she reuses all her objects all the time. So, so, so they won't stay together like that? No, no. So she loans them. I'd be, very interested, she, I'd be really interested to know how, whether or not a different thing occurs when she does actually meet the commercial world like that. Because they would want her to sell them. Yes. They'd yeah. be fools not to, wouldn't they? She also has, um, she does also make drawings, which, you know, I guess Again, are immediately more, more commercially viable. Yeah. And, and I presumably, I mean, does she, you said she writes, mm-hmm. but then we don't see the writing. No. The, the writing is towards what she says in the performance, I believe. Yeah, so the performances are what she has gone away and written. So they're, they're scripts, but she will also, so she often reads from her iPhone while she's performing. Yeah, I saw one on, on Wimeo. Yeah, her or doing she, that. at Blaine Southern, she was reading from. Um, she'd stuck the these sheets to newspapers, and, and they were on reading, the floor. Yeah, she had she yeah. picking up newspapers yeah, off the ground. Yeah, she kind of makes things difficult for herself. So yes. she'll lose her lose her place on her iPhone because she'll look away, or she yeah she's got it on this huge bit of paper and she can't open it out properly. But she makes something of that, which is actually not a fa- it makes it into some sort of success. Actually, it's quite her, yeah, but her, I, yeah, but that, I guess it communicates the difficulty of being able to perform or being able to articulate yourself or be able to communicate these positions at the same time yeah no it's, it's I thought it was, I think it's very interesting I think we'll leave the program there now people. <laughs> I shall reiterate one more time you can subscribe to Art Monthly for £36 that's the cheapest we do it you can buy it for slightly more the one I'm mentioning first is a direct debit which is once you've done it, you can just forget it. The, and cheapest, then... the cheapest is actually £32. Oh, my God, it's gone down. She mm-hmm. actually handles subs for Art Monthly, <laughs> <laughs> so she does know what she's talking about. I didn't mention what you all do. My apologies, <laughs> but um, one thing one of our people do is work for Art Monthly, which yeah. is the Sheer. <laughs> but it's great that someone who works in the office is also writing. Chris McCormack does it too, as does Patricia Vickers and David Barrett. Only I do not. <laughs> I just talk. <laughs> anyway, thank you all for coming on, thank and you. thank you all listeners for listening. And thank you. you'll hear us again in the future, I hope. This has been the Art Monthly Talk Show on Resonance Radio. I'm going to say goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>